This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled The Singer and His Songs. And joining me from near Toronto, Ontario, Canada, is author Deke Rivers. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Well, I'm honored to visit with you. You have such a fascinating background. I will just begin reading the first of your chapter one just to give people a flair or a flavor of what the book might encompass. Uh, You begin it like this. Chris Wilde was a superstar. No, he was more than that. He was a megastar. Even at his young age, he he was already a living legend. He had reached the pinnacle of the music industry. He was in a class by himself. Way above all the other entertainers in the world, he had conquered the world musically and now was acknowledged as the world's greatest singer, composer, guitarist, and entertainer. So you introduce your main character, Chris Wilde. You have a background that's not specifically in the music industry. Uh, You have another career that you pursued for a number of years, but just in the last uh, two, three years, you began with great earnest writing and authoring books. Share a little of your background and how this book got written. Well, uh, basically, I I, I, I do actually have some uh, uh, influences from the music industry. I when I was an architect working in Toronto here, I, I got to uh, work on uh, at least four recording studios. And uh, the recording studios were very complex in, in sound aspects and acoustics, and as you can appreciate. But uh, working on those particular studios, I got to meet a lot of the, the uh, modern-day uh, um, Artists in that era, like uh, John Denver, uh, a lot of a lot of artists, and uh, I got to meet the the Guess Who group with Burton Cummings from Canada mm. oh, here, yes, and yes, uh, yes. and Alice Cooper and uh, and Bob Seger and so on. So I got to communicate with them a lot about their industry, their their travels through the through their one night tours and and so on. So. I got to uh, got a, a pretty good understanding of what they were going through and what they were doing and and so on. Plus, the producers themselves, a guy called Jack Richardson, was a great inspiration, uh, and uh, Bob Ezrin, who did quite a few of the uh, uh, Pink Floyd albums uh, wow. and so on. And uh, that's that's fascinating. You know, on its own. It, it was it was it was a it was a. a, a an opening uh, of some technology that I hadn't experienced before, but uh, I got got to got a good handle on it. And whenever new studios came up in in Toronto, they always called me rather than going to the architect. So wow. I, I felt very honored in being sort of accepted into that little uh, special click click of of the music industry. Your story is 484 pages. Uh, the title again: "The Singer and His Songs." There is right. obviously a connection with the music industry, as you've described. But this story, where did the the uh, genesis of the of the plot line come from? How did you come up with a plot line, and how the did plot you plot line is, it? is basically in my own life. 
the only problem was I didn't become the rock star. I, uh, but uh, the, uh, the situation of being born in Estonia, uh, you know, being a DP or a displaced person and after the war, uh, immigrating to Australia, and then uh, I grew up basically in Australia learning the, the new English language and, and, and so on. And uh, But uh, more importantly, it was the era where the Victorian uh, past started to fade away and the modern era started to appear because the baby boomers were all coming, becoming teenagers. Mm. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, the, the whole uh, lifestyle started to change where the father knows best rule started to disappear, and and uh, and uh, you know the the old European of uh, you know you don't talk back to your father situation, and, you know the the, the, the teenagers were, were asking questions, and all of a sudden Elvis can't comes along and introduces a new music. Uh, in Australia at the time, they were playing one hour of rock and roll music a night on one radio station. Wow! This was in Sydney, the main Sydney. And uh, so, the, you know, but everybody, all the teenagers were listening to that one hour, you know, and waiting for the, the next day so they could listen to another hour of it because there was no music industry in Australia at the time. All the music was imported. So, you know, but slowly but surely, you know, the one hour became two hours, then became three hours, and then all of a sudden they realized, you know, with Bill Haley and... and uh, and a lot of the other entertainers of that era started appearing in Australia, being brought in by a guy called Lee Gordon, who was the promoter. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, the, the whole world opened up. You know, suddenly there was color in the life again. The old art, the old uh, European uh, grays, blacks, navy blues disappeared. There was color mm. light. <laughs> right. even in the clothing. The haircuts changed. The whole transition of uh, the disappearance of an era was so very apparent and uh, all of a sudden uh, it was it was an exciting time to be alive you know and and uh, Elvis's music uh, you know without a doubt I mean he was the prime uh, bringer in but there was little Richard and there was Eddie Cochran there was Gene Vincent and there's a whole string of others that's Domino and and uh, then a few local artists started appearing as well, and uh, but uh, you know they weren't in the same class as as, as what was being brought in uh, from the states and England. And it was Tommy Steele from England, and uh, and then Cliff Richard started to appear later on, and so on. But it was an exciting time to be alive, and and because there was there was a massive change in culture, <laughs> and I always laughed uh, that. Uh, when Elvis's first movie came to Sydney, uh, the uh, sidewalks outside the theater were all lined up with, with all these women mm. wanting to go and see Elvis. <laughs> Yet across the street, they were showing the movie And God Created Woman, uh -huh. where all the men were lined up to go and see <laughs> uh, Bridget Bardot's butt for two seconds. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Your novel, is it set in contemporary times or is it sort of a flashback or how would you describe it? Well, it, it it starts off in in the uh, in the past, obviously back in the fifties when rock and roll was being born. Okay. Basically, the, I, I always look at it that way because that's when the era really started and, and took took hold. You know, the first song, you know, for, you know, Bill Haley's uh, "Rock Around the Clock" was the first one that hit the the, uh, the the charts in the United States and became number one. I mean, that was the first rock and roll record, and that's going back into the fifties. Mm. So. 
but the the rest of the story evolves around the, the much more to the modern times where you know uh, the uh, entertainers became much more involved in in the the process and the, and the book basically tells you, you know, or goes through the processes that a person has to uh, go through before he can achieve any kind of success and any kind of fame. And it's not an easy road. It's like, it's like Elvis didn't walk onto Ed Sullivan's stage and become a star overnight. I mean, he had, had, he had uh, uh, duties to perform way before that and, uh, and, and you know, face many rejections and, and the criticism from the adults and everything else. And the adults, uh, unfortunately, through that whole era, forgot that uh, going back to the 20s, uh, Elvis wasn't the first guy to move on stage. Mm-hmm. There was people like Al Jolson uh, and uh, Eddie Cantor that never stood still when they were entertaining. But the difference was that Eddie Cantor and, and Al Jolson were entertaining adults. They weren't entertaining uh, teenagers. And mm-hmm. this is where the big change came in. Now, all of a sudden, the, the adults felt that uh, Elvis was intruding on, on their grounds by you know, stealing the teenagers away and, and, and uh, creating music that really only suited the teenagers. And it was an inter- interesting time. And, you know, the, but the overall picture is, is the entertainment industry of, of how widespread it is, how how important the music is and how how important uh, it is to everybody i mean everybody has to has a favorite tune has a favorite mu- music i mean most of my books uh when you when you go through them you'll find there there are sections of songs uh and lyrics that are, that are applicable to certain memories interesting and and it becomes like a time clock yeah. you know you start uh, generating ideas and concepts uh, right through your whole life, uh, and it's based on music. And I feel sorry for the for the uh, present generation because the, the the modern music does not lend itself to it. Yes. If you take a look at all the entertainers that are touring the United States right now in the world, they're all from the '60s, man. I tell you, they're all from the '60s. <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah, a lot current, of them are unfortunately are passing away. Yeah. The current current music, it for me, I can't. Uh, I I it the lyrics don't stick with me, and and the music style doesn't stick no, with me. It's not something don't. I go down the street humming yeah, the, and, the, the and singing. British invasion. I mean, the music was pleasant. It was it was hummable. You could you know you you know you heard it once or twice. You could you could sing along with it. Mm-hmm. It was it was you know a relaxing, quiet uh, music. Not, well, not exactly quiet, but. But it, it was music that was was easy easy to listen to. Easy to listen to. Whereas it. the music today, you know, you take away take away the rap because I don't consider that as music anyway. Uh, unfortunately, you know, it's 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 suited to, for certain people, but uh, unfortunately, I'm not one of them. Not one, yes. uh, but uh, a Chris, a Chris, but the Chris. the modern day music doesn't have the same type of uh, drawing power that the music back in in the '60s, '70s. Even eighties and nineties had, you know, it's it's sort of fading, fading, uh, fading away. And unfortunately, there isn't there isn't any major artist that is 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 sort of, you know, you look at the the main entertainers today. You still are still people like Elton John. You know, you still hear hear Paul McCartney in the background. You know, a lot of, you know, a lot of the stations are still playing the old time rock and roll from mm-hmm. from the from the bygone eras. You know, it's 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 sad. Your main character, Chris Wilde, 
he is a composite of all these characters that you have observed over the years, I'm guessing. Is it, uh, would you describe That's your novel, correct, yeah. novel as character-driven? Is it more of a, a docudrama that's not really a documentary? How would you, how would you best place this? Uh, I, I, you know, basically, I think it's, it's, it's a transition of, of, of the steps of, of how an, an unknown becomes a, a star. And uh, a lot of it is, 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 is uh, coincidental. You know, a lot of the things you know, aren't planned. Things just happen. Uh, in the case of Chris Wilde, he, he is like a, a dual personality because once, once he gets up off onto a stage, he's a different person. Right. Mentioned in the book, you know, he, he's uh, on stage, he's uh, one character. Off stage, he's, he's another character. That and, happens with uh, a lot of entertainers, doesn't just, it? Uh, yeah. That a lot of entertainers have that dual personality. You, as you begin to craft this, uh, does it take you? Because you've mentioned to me, you have uh, penned a myriad of uh, of novels and books. Uh, how many to this date have been published? Uh, right now, I think I've got fifteen in the publishing stage, and uh, the remaining three or four are with the publisher right now. Incredible, going through their final checks. Incredible, before now, they're going to be published. As you began to to come up with the concept for this book, how long did it take to complete four hundred and fifty four pages or four hundred eighty four pages of of uh, novel and content? That one, that, that that basically is my second book. The first book I wrote was. Like a, a twelve uh, twelve hundred page marathon. Oh my goodness! And uh, <laughs> you know, it's reminiscent of people like Frederick Forsyth who put so much damn detail into his books that that you you get lost halfway through <laughs> because you you just lost in all the details. And uh, that was my first book, and uh, that is in fact <laughs> going to be published as as two novels, uh, the father and and the son. So this is that's the Scarlet Saga that will will be coming out uh, in. in Hopefully, relatively shortly. But uh, the first uh, uh, singing song that, that took, you know, basically took me, I guess, about a year. A year. Uh, because I was still working as an architect at the time when I was writing it. Mm. And you multitask, I'm assuming, with all these other novels in the works. You, do you do one novel at a time, or do you do multi-novels? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm working on three right now. Uh, incredible. Your story, who is going to find this uh, an interesting read? Is this one that uh, is going to draw in uh, people who are character-driven, mystery-driven, action-driven? What is the, the mix in The Singer and His Songs? Uh, the, the basic thing, I think, is a, is a recollection of the past uh, in, in, in many ways for, for all the baby boomers that, uh, that experienced this era. But not only for them, but their their own kids, their own children, their own families, to understand what their what their families and parents went through in in this this transition era. And uh, I, you know, I don't think really having existed till till today, <laughs> um, I really don't believe that the, that type that massive a change has taken place since. You know, yes, we've mm-hmm. had. The, the world of technology come in very very heavily and and uh, and the technology has and, and computers and and, and uh, cell phones and whatever else uh, all these different uh, gadgets that are now on the market uh, is a transition period but I don't think there was such a, a, a massive change in society going from the Victorian era to the modern era and I think that in itself I think is is, is 
would be interesting for anyone to read. Which of the scenes that you've crafted do you think is going to reach out and grab the reader and hold their attention? I think the fact, you know, that uh, he, he walks out on the stage and all of a sudden everybody stops dancing and they want to watch him, you know, for the first time. It's it's not just uh, an old band uh, type uh, music where you, music plays and everybody goes and dances, and, you know, whereas uh, there's a transition to actually physically seeing the entertainer. Mm. And, uh, you know, and I think Elvis Presley was the, probably the prime uh, draw card in, in in that sense because people went out to see him. I saw him in '72 in, in Buffalo. Fortunately, he was he's my hero right from from the, when I was a little kid. And uh, you know, uh, luckily I got to see him. Uh, but uh, it was it was still when he was in his prime and back in '72, and it was a, a fantastic concert. I set up in the bleachers with my wife at the time. And uh, it, it was a, a very memorable evening. Memorable, absolutely. And you've uh, you've conveyed that same feel in the singer and his songs. And it also is an outline of the life of superstar Chris Wilde. Is there another novel that may be a, a sequel to this? There's or did a you sequel rip it to all? that, actually. Yes, sir. Okay. I've written a sequel to called uh, John English, The Last of the British Invasion. Ah, fascinating. And, and uh, basically, it it's, uh, turns out this is, uh, John English is, is an English guitarist who doesn't want to be a rock star, but uh, wants to wants to be a um, a uh, backup guitarist, but the best in the world. Incredible. So he he learns from all the British invasion guitarists and and uh, and achieves that particular goal. So he's on demand by everybody. But all of a sudden, fate uh, decides that he. He's, he's too important a person to uh, let him slip through the fingers of the music industry, so fate turns him into a superstar as well. But uh, he has a connection. He, he knew Chris Wilde, and he ends up uh, getting uh, hooked up with uh, with uh, Chris Wilde's uh, first girlfriend in, in Australia. So there is some romance in this book also for those that are interested in a little hugging and hugging and hugging and uh, smooching and stuff. Well, I won't say smooching. That's a bad word. It's an old word. Anyway, (laughs) uh, this uh, this novel, uh, any of your novels that have been released so far, has there been uh, maybe an interest from the from the uh, movie industry by any of the storylines you've produced? Uh, I think the, the, there has been a uh, actual uh, movie script uh, or what they call a Hollywood treatment mm-hmm. done on this particular book on the singer and song. Well, best of but luck. The other with that. ones, I guess, are, are pretty pretty early stage because they've just been published basically in the last six to eight months. Because I, I had had most of them while while I was still uh, babysitting my wife in the, in the nursing home and seeing her every day. Uh, I, I, the books ended up being on the shelf, so I published mm. probably around 14 of them all at once. That's amazing. It's it's an incredible uh, story, just the fact that you have been able to publish or create more than one novel. This is 484 pages. Amazing. The title, again, yeah. is The Singer and His Songs, and my author who has joined me from near Toronto, Ontario, Canada, is Deke Rivers. Deke, where do my listeners get copies of your book? Uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and I think most of the, if you go on the web page, uh, there's there's a few web pages there that uh, actually carry some. Some of the publishers themselves have uh, 
outlets where they can get the books as well. Excellent. They can do a search under your name, too, D-E-K-E. Yeah, they can do a search under Google, and you'll find my name uh, appears there, too. Fantastic. And last name, if Rivers. If you look for a fiction, fiction writer, just uh, type in type in a fiction writer, and you'll find uh, Deke Rivers there as well. Super. Your website, I think, is under development, and it's also under that same uh, author named Deke Rivers. There's so, a couple of web, web there's a couple of web pages actually because uh, I think uh, one of the publishers is doing a separate one, and I had my original one from from way back in the first book. Congratulations! Thank you for sharing your story. And if you have any interest in the music industry or in a wonderful character development, you'll enjoy this novel. The title again is The Singer and His Songs. Author Deke Rivers, published by I Universe. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you. Appreciate it. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With Baby and Toddler Instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, A Sojourn Among the Avatars of Wisdom, and the author is Dudley Meekum, and Dudley joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dudley. Hi, Steve. Great to have you with us, Dudley. We're going to talk about this action-adventure, as you call it, even though it has lots of uh, different elements than most adventures, because... You're going to throw in lots of nuggets of wisdom and a little bit of a fantasy, but we'll get into those details in a moment. Let me read what you've written about your book. You say this, Guided by the wisdom of the ages, an astronaut competes in a tournament to become a knight, and he begins an epic adventure that will change his life forever. So... Kind of uh, modern, because we're dealing with an astronaut to the International Space Station. Yes, he makes a journey up from the space shuttle and rendezvous with the International Space Station and is scheduled to perform some duties. Scheduled to perform some duties, and then, of course, the unexpected happens. Before we get into the unexpected, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you wrote the book. I wrote the book as a gift to my younger self because I didn't experience as much success as my colleagues or people my age. So I figured that my younger self would probably need not my wisdom, but the wisdom of the world's greatest sages. And what I do is I provide the connective tissue that that weaves all that logic or wisdom together. Very interesting. So... 
you, through your life experiences, uh, some uh, wisdom quotes that ring true with you, included those into this story. Yes. Things that really resonated with you, things that you needed. That's correct. All right. Very good. Well, I'm sure they're universally needed. Many of us, uh, life is filled with all kinds of challenges. So let's talk about Chris Cole and the the challenges that he is facing. As we already mentioned, he's an astronaut, and he goes up to the International Space Station. I guess, uh, is this his first time? It is, indeed. So he's got a lot of a lot of different feelings about this. Right, it's a once in a lifetime journey for him. Once in a lifetime journey. And what happens? Things go wrong, he returns to Earth. He could not return to the the original location where he took off from, so he lands at Edwards Air Force Base in California and then eventually goes to kill a day until his return flight the next day, he journeys to a medieval fair where the king unexpectedly selects him as a contestant in a medieval tournament. So this tournament is real? It is at the at the medieval fair, yes. Yes, so he has to learn to do what? He needs to learn how to wield a longsword. But really, it's a it's a padded long sword, so he won't do damage to himself or or hurt other people, other contestants. But behind the scenes, there's much more going on. Yes, enemies coalesce to thwart him, and they pretty much succeed at different points during the book. But the, a cast of colorful characters guide him on the, on the correct path, using using the wisdom of the world's greatest sages verbatim. So why would these enemies, what made them his enemies? The the wizard said that for him to proceed in this training, for him to introduce Chris Cole to a friend of the wizard's, that he had to overcome one of his fears, and one of his fears, which happens to be pretty much everyone's fear, number one fear, that is public speaking, and that, in fact, happens to be worse than the fear of dying. But during the course of giving a speech, he he did so from the perch where the jester usually gives his speech, so he immediately made an enemy right there on the spot. So the jester, in turn, leads his forces against Chris, and it's a, it's a long day for Chris Cole. So this jester is uh, one of the main characters? Yes, he is. Well, tell us a little bit about him. As a jester, he knows how to make fun of people, and he becomes so good at it that really Chris Cole is an easy target for him, and it doesn't take much effort on the part of the jesters to just dissuade Chris to, to continue in this contest. So he, when his, his verbal uh, arrows don't do the trick, then he enlists other people to physically dissuade Chris from carrying on with the tournament. I guess we all have jesters in our lives, don't we? We already we all have that jester who wants to make fun of us. Yes, and and perhaps the jester in our own mind might be that that person. Very well. Yes, in our own mind and 
The wizard must play an important role here. Yeah, he plays an important role. He's one of a cast of supporting characters, but he definitely lifts Chris off his, off of his feet first and then introduces him to other people who in turn help Chris Cole as well. So this medieval fair, this tournament, really is more about real life than some kind of fantasy. You could look at it that way, of course. Yes, at some point in your life you're not prepared for the, the conflict that you enter and you turn, uh, turn to the advice of others for help. And I would imagine that the advice of the world's greatest sages would probably trump uh, person A or person B. Now this advice from the world's greatest philosophers and sages... What is the what is their role here? What uh, how do you work that into this whole story theme, the plot? In fact, you even called it that writing your book was like uh, a Rubik's cube. Yes, because the the advice has to be solicited. Therefore, the protagonist has to be laid low many times during the story. And I had to decide which character was going to say which pearls of wisdom and which order and in which scene. So I had to keep moving the advice around among the different characters and in different scenes to make it work. Because setting up, setting up solicited advice is a bit like setting up a joke. You just can't lob the punchline in there anywhere. It has to, it has to flow naturally. Timing is everything. Yes. And I guess the same with how we use wisdom. Timing is everything. Of course. We have to be ready to accept it. Absolutely. And that usually takes place when, not when things are going well, but when things are not going well. You write that Chris really has created a prison of his own making. Now, how do you explain that? When he was young, he, he got into a fight and was knocked out. And according to Chris, the only, only thing worse than that happening is, is death. So he takes that incident and carries it with him for the rest of his life, or at least until he meets the current char- cast of characters. And because he's a, more of a technical kind of guy, more of an engineer, he doesn't really excel in the physical aspects of life. And in that respect, that's, that's his prison, as he can't, can't do well physically. And through every, the cast of characters' wisdom, those, those characters are able to change Chris's mind. Does he have a friend that really, who really helps him? I try to make it so that everyone helps him pretty much equally. It, it would, if it were just one person, it would people would lose interest in the story. Dudley, we've been mentioning words of wisdom from these philosophers and from sages. Why don't you give us some of these, this wisdom that you included in this storyline? One of the quotes goes as follows. Iron rusts from disuse, stagnant water loses its purity, and in cold weather becomes frozen. Even so does inaction sap the vigor of the mind. That was said by Leonardo da Vinci. So these quotes, these words of wisdom, they're very deep. Yes, they are. 
Are they all like the one you just read, or do they have that kind of style? Yes, they are a paternal tone, so that you don't need to make the same mistake that it, it's already pointing you in the right direction. It can save you time as a reader. A very unique literary style because of those who shared this kind of wisdom, but at the same time, directly to the point. Yes. Please share another one. The next one goes as follows. All successful men have agreed in one thing. They were causationists. They believed that things went not by luck, but by law, that there was not a weak or cracked link in the chain that joins the first and last of things. That was said by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Obviously, well-known philosophers that you have shared with us. We've been talking with Dudley Meekum. He's the author of his book, A Sojourn Among the Avatars of Wisdom. Dudley, what's the best way to get your book? You can obtain a copy through Amazon.com or through my website, www.dudleymeekum.com. And I watched a YouTube trailer on your book. Hopefully it was entertaining. Yes, and tell our listeners how they can watch. They can go to YouTube and type in the words Dudley Meekum. Last name is spelled M-E-C-U-M. Thank you so much, Dudley, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thanks for having me, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing. More joy and less judgment. You're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Veterans Reflections, History Preserved. And joining me from New Hampshire in the United States of America is Sergeant First Class, retired, passionate advocate, and supporter of our military, author William R. Grazer. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. It is evident from your book your deep regard for those who have served this country. Thank you for your service and also for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome, sir. This book is uh, important on a lot of a lot of levels. Uh, you've managed to pen, uh, you know, 303 pages of uh, of information where you have interviewed uh, veterans of many of the foreign wars. In fact, I think your history, if I if I understand your book and have read uh, parts, portions of it, you actually reflect back to World War One and and up to the present. Am I understanding your your approach? Yes, yes, you are. Uh, I, I decided to start with the end. Uh, following the end of World War One and, and how um, uh, you know, the politics of the time uh, started setting the stage for what was to come in 1931-39. So, yeah, I did. I started with World War One. There's uh, definitely a, a historical aspect to your book. 
but it is more than that for you because you are also are a um, military uh, graduate. I mean, you've been in the military. You're a sergeant first class. Is that uh, also your ranking? Yes, it is. In talking to these veterans, uh, one thing that strikes me is uh, in talking to veteran friends that I, I uh, personally am acquainted with, many of them don't want to share their stories. How did you get motivated to get them motivated to tell their story? Well, that's an interesting question. Actually, it's a very good question because as I, as I began to, uh, well, let me back up just a bit here, if I may. When I uh, first decided to collect uh, some stories, it was done back in around 2006, 2007. And what I was intending to do was pick up maybe a dozen or so and then uh, have a, um, a Veterans Day ceremony where these folks would be recognized. And as I began to collect them, I found that there was a lot more to the story than at first I thought it was going to do, is tell the whole story. I guess what I'm trying to say there, I just realized that there was a lot of information being provided by veterans that most would never hear. And I said, geez, a great opportunity to tell the larger story. But to get back to your question... Yes, I, I did. As a matter of fact, uh, after finishing all the interviews, which uh, were about 60 of them, uh, I learned I learned of many of the veterans, especially those who felt uh, their service uh, didn't put them in a situation where they were risking their lives, uh, didn't necessarily, um, I don't know, like to be referred to as a veteran. So what, what I thought about it, I said, you know, I learned that many, drug, you know, many of these veterans struggled with the title of veteran because they felt uh, they hardly warranted being characterized because they didn't think their life was truly at risk. And personally, myself, and uh, in serving the number of years that I did, I took exception to that, and, and I sat and I talked with these veterans, and I pretty much tried to clear the air that, one, it's important, secondly, if it hadn't been for you, either volunteering or being invited to serve, the Cold War could have turned out a lot different. Mm. You have to understand your contribution, perhaps, at the time, like all of us, when we're in the military doing our jobs, we don't know what the grand scheme is. So we get out, we go on with our lives. It isn't until later when you take the opportunity to look back onto World War II or during the Cold War period that you realize, well, you know, my small contribution did, in fact, have some impact in the end result and led to the collapse of the Soviet Empire, if you will. You, so you... I, I, tried to, I tried to convey to them that message, and I, and I told them, you, know, you should be proud, proud to stand tall when you're referred to as a veteran. There's, you know, when you joined or were invited, there was never any guarantee uh, that tomorrow you wouldn't be at war and your life would be in danger. So I tried to, tried to, to, to convey that and have them understand it. And quite frankly, I found that when I explained it in that way, and I've done that many times, even in groups at the VFW and other places, they do eventually come around and say, you know, you're right. You know, I was a cook, or I was in personnel, or I was in finance, and, and I stress, without it, it's a cog in the wheel that would have been missing, and the service never would have been complete. Did so, yes, I, I think that uh, they do. They do struggle. And I, I look at it this way. The, it's a seven-letter word that says it all, and, and basically is the word veteran. Mm. If you wore the uniform, you should be proud of the fact that you are a veteran. Definitely the case. I know in Vietnam, the Vietnam veterans that I'm familiar with uh, have a very, I don't say a negative view of what they did, but they uh, they don't feel proud of necessarily supporting the uh, U.S. government policy during that time frame and feel that they should kind of keep it in the shadows. Are the other veterans of other conflicts, do they feel the same way? Well, I think Vietnam, and, and speaking again for myself, I'm a Vietnam veteran, and, and, I, and I believe that a lot of us felt that the... Uh, and again, you got to remember, this is the first time that we went into a conflict, and as it turned out, we lost. Mm. Uh, prior to that, uh, every war that we were involved with, we either won 
or it came to a climax uh, to where at least there was some form of ceasefire or a peace treaty. Uh, Korea is a good example of that. Right. Even though Korea to this day is still a threat to the world, uh, the, the war ended and the troops came home, and we just maintain a force there. But as far as Vietnam is concerned, you're right. I, I, I've, I've heard that. I've experienced it. I've, I've talked with a lot of veterans from Vietnam, and, and I find that isn't necessarily as true as it used to be. Good. Uh, and I'll give you an example. There was a lieutenant here that, uh, that I know very well that's in the book, and he um, was an infantry officer with an advisory group in Vietnam. And what he found, doing his job, he took a lot of pride in that. Again, not knowing what the outcome was going to be, you just do the job that you're being asked to do. And he made a comment to me, and I wrote this down. If you don't mind, I just like to, it's not a quote per se, it's just something that I'm paraphrasing. Absolutely. Now, he's a combat veteran. He was there in 1969 to 1970. And this is what he had to say. This was just recent in 2015 at a Memorial Day ceremony. He says, I was fighting to survive and go home while the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong fought to preserve their country. Most of the South Vietnamese I met really had no interest in the war or its politics. It made no matter, it made no matter to them whether there was in North and South Vietnam. They just went and returned to the rice paddies of their ancestors. And he, and that was, that's pretty much the passage of the wording that he used. And I, and I think about that myself, and it's true. I mean, we found that to be the case with most of the uh, Arvin soldiers that I even worked with or were around. They, didn't, they just didn't see it. But veterans today, and the Vietnam veterans, I think, one, they've been recognized as, as uh, a group that, does, um, that should be honored and respected for what they did. I mean, they, they weren't the politicians. They weren't the ones that decided that Vietnam was going to be lost. Uh, for other reasons than the commitment that the soldiers had on the ground. Absolutely the case. There are 60 or more veterans that you have interviewed and and, uh, told their story. How did you find these veterans that were willing to talk to you, first of all, and what do you think is perhaps the biggest surprise that you personally ran into in sharing their story? The biggest surprise was actually their willingness to tell their story. Mm. Uh, a lot of times, going back to what you were asking, a lot of veterans you would think were, would be more elusive, uh, not want to sit down and talk to you. And, and I believe that this kind of is, is a common thread, but I also find it links to what you asked. When I speak with or have spoken to World War II veterans, Korean War veterans, and some of these folks have really been involved, and in, quite frankly, in the blood of war. They never really talked much about it when they were young and raising their families. It's later they look back and say, you know, I did something that was important, and I sat down with these folks and I talked to them. Uh, there was a Navy man that uh, I, I seemed to, <laughs> he's, he's passed, unfortunately, before this book got published, but his wife and his family has a copy of it for his grandchildren. And uh, one of the things that he mentioned uh, in his story, he says, uh, I was a storekeeper, which is essentially like a supply crook would be in the Army. He was in the Navy, and he was assigned with the Marine units, and he was involved in the Battle of Okinawa back in April of 1945. He really not, didn't really talk a lot about it until he and I sat one day, and just over a beer, he gave me a story. And, and I took an excerpt from that, if you don't mind. I just like sure. to read this excerpt. Sure, love to hear it. It's like, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it strikes home about what he was, what he was experiencing and, and his sense of, uh, of his uh, contribution, if, I, if you may. Sure. He said, this is what he says, as dusk, settled over the area, I noticed there was a machine gun crew to my left and felt a sense of relief. I dozed off, and all of a sudden the Japs let go with a mortar barrage hitting the fuel dump. The night lit up, and the machine gun crew opened fire with traces streaming through the night. 
and the dark. And, and, he, and he looked at me, and he broke into tears. Wow. And I, I sat with him, and that was one of the most difficult parts of writing this book, was sitting with people like him, uh, telling their stories, and then having their emotions take over. But he, he was the type of person, after he retired, he went on to be a very successful businessman uh, in the private sector. And he used to go around, and when he'd be in a restaurant with his wife or his family, he'd be sitting there, and he would notice a veteran sitting in the restaurant. And he did this many, many times. This is one, it's not just an example. He just did this all the time. He would ask the waitress to give him the check. Really? So that's the type of person he was. And, and I met these people, and it was just an experience, a moving experience. And, I, and I, I get goosebumps, if you will, when I, when I listen to them, and it became an honor to write their stories, uh, put all this on paper, uh, sit back and say, now, how do I really tell the story? It, you know, it, how do you do this? How do you, you justify or how do you convey to, the, to a reader what it must have been like to serve during these periods? So I sat and I thought about it and I, and I pulled all my own experiences and I started to put together the, some of the historical context that was taking place around them when they were serving. So that someone reads the book, not only are they getting the sense of what it was like to serve, but they also understand what was happening behind the scenes, the political or military actions that were uh, taking place at the time. You've included some well, wonderful... I approached the book. You've included some wonderful photos that uh, also reinforce the stories and uh, give a context to the stories you're sharing. Sixty wonderful veterans uh, that shared their story. How long did it take you to compile all of these stories and get them into book form? Oh, boy. <laughs> seems like it's been forever. My wife used to say to me, am I ever going to get you back? Uh, I, would, uh, I started, uh, like I said earlier, I began with in 2006 just you know, talking to a few veterans that I had met, especially in a retirement community that I presently reside at, and I put their stories together, and uh, one thing led to another, and I started to say, you know, I am going to write the whole story. I'm going to take my time, collect the rest of the stories, and I kind of imposed upon myself a timeline how far back do I want to go? That goes back to your original question. It went back to World War One, and how did we get into the into the first Second World War? What caused it? You know, uh, and then how did these folks contribute to the effort so that we did eventually uh, was victorious over Germany and Japan? And it took me probably if if you just take out vacations and private time, probably five years to do the whole book. Five years, and the the stories stories it. are are wonderfully uh, outlined. I am uh, curious. Also, you must have had a an end time or an end reader in in mind as you began to write this. Was this designed for uh, simply veterans, or do you think this is going to benefit maybe the younger generation that just doesn't have a clue of what happened in their past or in our past? Well, I'm hoping I'm hoping that it that it will in fact uh, not only uh, attract the audience that we typically uh, would relate to a subject like this. But I, I, I sat and I thought about that, actually. I said, you know, what am I gonna, how am I going to write this so not only will the military or uh, professionals that like military history want to read it? So I wrote it in a very simple form. Uh, it's, it's not a lot of uh, in-depth information. It's more of a generalization of the historical events that were taking place at the time. Right. And I believe the the way the book is written, anyone who picks it up, sits down, and starts to read, it's compelling enough that they're going to pick up not only on the history, but then again the appreciation for the veterans. So it's not necessarily set for for a veteran or, or for present-day service members, for that matter. I, I, I see it being read by not only those folks, but people who maybe are in college and are in a political science program. It would be simple for them to do. 
Bill, recap for me. What do you think is the most important message that the reader will take away from this this read? I think the most important message the reader is going to take away is an understanding and, and an appreciation for our veterans, uh, specifically their sacrifice and commitment uh, to support and defend our country. I really think that's going to come through. Beautiful. I know they certainly need our support even today, even if they're not in the military and active. I was wondering, you know, most of the time when when I think of veterans and their stories, I'm thinking of uh, stories that are difficult to read or reflect upon. And yet your book has a wide range of uh, of stories. Uh, there also is some humor in this in this narrative. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. I didn't, that, that's, a, that's a good point, uh, actually, a very good point. Service in the military isn't always in the throes of battle. There's always the light times. There's always the fun times. And I think most of us have served, sit back, and when we reflect, generally we kind of go back to that, well, we had a good time doing this or doing that. And I take an example. It was a Vietnam veteran who said to me, I was in the Jeep, and I got attacked by Premapine. And I says, Premapine? And he laughs, and he says, you know that thick, gooey material they used to spray around the landing fields for the helicopters or at the base camps to keep the dust down? I said, well, I remember that. He says, well, there was a Vietnamese woman with the power hose spraying that, and the hose got away from her, and she sprayed all of us in the Jeep. I read that. That's I, had Premapine. I was attacked by Premapine. I just stuck in all that goo. And he laughed, <laughs> and it was funny the way he said it. And he was actually uh, an engineer assigned to the first cab, and his other side of his story obviously isn't uh, doesn't have that type of uh, humor. Yeah, there, there are funny parts to it. Uh, even myself, when uh, I look back and I laugh a little bit about things that you would you would never think of doing sometimes, but you do. Uh, it takes the, it takes the pressure off, I guess. And you know, <laughs> I could go on and on about this, and if it was in a different environment, you'd be surprised what I could tell you in, in a short more in a, in a lot longer time. Well, but we, I want to, I, I'd like to say this. Yes. You know, can I, can I just like to say this? I just really want to say this. Veterans, to me, are a very, very special group of people. Not just because I'm one, but they're all very important and very special to the American fabric in terms of where we are in the world today. And, and I, I've had an opportunity to speak with a number of veterans from Afghanistan and Iraq who view their service slightly different than the previous generations. Mm-hmm. And you're probably wondering, what do I mean by that? Well. I'm going to be perfectly honest. I, I listen to these folks, uh, and I meet a lot of them at the, at the uh, veteran centers where they do a lot of counseling and so forth. And they will tell you that one tour was fine, two tours were fine, five, six, eight tours, not so good. Wow. I think I think that the veteran today, I'm just I'm a, I, I don't know, I, I don't I know what I want to say, but I'm not quite sure how to put it into words. I, and I don't want someone listening to this and saying, "What is he talking about?" So I'm going to leave that go for right now. I was going to say something, but I don't think it's appropriate at this point. Well, I think I can read between the lines. Uh, the veterans in today's Army and in today's Air Force and in the military have been certainly taxed beyond what they have uh, deserved, I'm thinking. And, uh, Bill, thank you so much for sharing the story of 60 veterans in your book, Veterans Reflections, History Preserved. Again, my guest has been William R. Grazer. Bill, my listeners need to get a copy of your book. How do they find a copy? If they're looking to um, to purchase or to get a copy of the book, it's presently on Amazon. It's on uh, Barnes & Noble and other some of the other bookseller websites. Uh, it can also be obtained directly from the publisher, which is iUniverse. Uh, all they have to dial is uh, 1-800-288-4677, and they can order directly from the publisher. All right, Bill, thank you so much for joining me today. Is there a uh, a sequel to this particular book, Veterans Reflections? 
Actually, yes, there is, and, and there will be. Uh, and that's why I kind of hesitated to say a lot about the present day. Uh, I've been working on, on a manuscript to take this book one step further and uh, not only to speak with veterans from Afghanistan and Iraq and also um, I'm trying to – I want to also sit and speak with a number of, of our women soldiers. I think today their jobs are, are incredibly dangerous. They're uh, – incredible group of people as well. And when I listen and I listen to other veterans talking about them, you have to understand in Iraq when the first time we went in, unfortunately the casualty rate for women in, in, in Iraq was quite high, relatively mm. speaking. You know, we're talking over 100 uh, that were killed in action for, in various ways because a lot of them were either military police or they worked in logistics or drove supply trucks and things of that nature, and IEDs took a toll. Right. So I do want to, uh, I, mean, I am going to add to this book at some point, and I'm going to continue on with the story uh, a little bit more in depth when it comes to the current day and what's going on since 9-11. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me today. Again, the book is titled Veterans Reflections, History Preserved, and my guest has been author William R. Grazer, Grazer spelled G-R-A-S-E-R, for those of you who may want to do a search online. Bill, thank you again for joining me today and sharing their stories and yours. And uh, look forward to visiting with you in the future when the next book is published. I really appreciate that. I'd love to come back and uh, and uh, and speak to the, uh, the additional stories uh, and, and see where it goes with that. But like I said, the veterans are very special. And I, I do want to add one last thing, if I may. Sure. There's a veteran in my book. He's a retired lieutenant colonel by the name of Wayne Parsons. He's got a unique story in the book. He was a Marine in Vietnam in 1969 and 70, and he was a sergeant at the time. He uh, separated from the Marine Corps and went to college and went through the ROTC program. And when he graduated, he was commissioned as a lieutenant, and he was in the military police corps. After his service in, in Vietnam, he went on to serve with the Army, not only in Afghanistan, but he was in the first Gulf War in 1991, and served in Israel and West Germany. So this man has had quite, quite a career. And he, his story in Veterans Reflection is, is, tells the story of his experiences during the Gulf War and during the 03-04 time frame with Operation Enduring Freedom. Mm. Fabulous. Bill, thank you again. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.